This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Mason's Brown Rice Hour, a podcast that quilts together a fabric of connection between land, race, money, culture, and spirit. Discover a connection that engages with the most inspiring and cutting-edge thought leaders today, pointing toward our collective healing and liberation. If you are interested in supporting the Brown Rice Hour, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Conda. So welcome. I am back with uh, Welcome to the Brown Rice Hour, everyone. And this is Conda Mason, and we have conversations here at the Brown Rice Hour at the intersection of land, race, money, culture, and spirit. And so um, that gives a lot of latitude for a lot of great conversations, and I'm really, really fortunate to know and to have with me a lot of great people. And today... I'm extremely fortunate to have a very special guest, and my special guest today is Miss Krista Tippett, um, the creator and the host of the On Being Project, which is a public radio show and podcast about what it means to be human, how we want to live, and who we will be to each other. Krista, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It is so awesome for me to have you here. I can't tell you. It's just like a dream come true. I really am so thrilled to have you on, on my podcast. It's pretty intimidating, I have to say. But, you know, we're going to go for it. You are the <laughs> podcast queen. I'm in good hands. I know that. <laughs> so, okay. So I'm going to do a little bit of a, a bio on Krista Tippett. And so Krista is the host of the On Being public radio show and podcast. She curates um, the Civil Conversations Project and founded and leads the On Being Project, which is a nonprofit media and public life initiative that pursues deep thinking and moral imagination, social courage and joy towards the renewal of inner life, outer life, and life together. I love that. Krista grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. She attended Brown University and worked as a journalist and diplomat in Cold War Berlin. And later, she received a Master of Divinity at Yale University. So she's been awarded um, a very prestigious award by um, President Obama, the National Humanities Medal, in 2013. And she's written three books, Speaking of Faith, Einstein's Gold, and Becoming Wise, an Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living. And you're working on another book too, Krista? Well... Kind of. I was supposed to publish a book. I was supposed to finish it this this year, but um, you know, when you when you finish a book, because of publishing, if you're writing a book right now, you're writing into late 2022 and early 2023, and I feel like if we've learned anything in the last year is that we don't know what's going to happen next month, and it felt presumptuous <laughs> to me to be writing. I mean, we have to make that future right. Like that's what I have to do right now is throw my life huh. at that future. But I interesting. So writing a book felt like it would make it too concrete before it's emerged. Is that kind no, of No, it felt it feels too hypothetical and it feels presumptuous uh -huh. to me to be speaking to the world. I just feel like we're called to be faithful to everything we've learned and experienced and and the work that's that's there. And um yeah. I feel like 
speaking into that hypothetical world um, is just is not on my heart. And yeah, I feel like I feel like a lot of I feel like what we do, what I do, what what we culturally do in the next year and a half is really significant. And it's not, and the work is not just for the next year and a half, it's for the rest of the century. Right. right. But I think it's it's up to, to me and to us to throw our lives at what we want 2023 to look like. And mm-hmm. I don't feel like I can speak to 2023. I feel like what I have to do is live towards it. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, but it's been a strange. It totally does. No, it does. It's an unusual. It's it's you know, history is always like this. It always feels like this is the most precious, unusual moment, mm-hmm. and it kind of is really. Yeah. And so I get that it's this is a very deep, unusual time, and to be able yeah. to there's just so much up in the air, yeah. <laughs> and it would yeah. be hard to. I I get it. I get it. I um well we'll look forward to it when you're ready to let that book out of you. Yeah. It'll be a wonderful, I'm mm-hmm. sure, and very um profound undertaking. Um I want to um we've begun, but I'd like to go back a little bit and open up sacred space. Um this is kind of my tradition is opening up sacred space. Mm-hmm. Um and how I do that, I just honor um, the ancestors and the land which we are sitting on. And I am here in Louisiana right now, which is my new home. And I happen to be in New Orleans right in this moment. And um, this is Choctaw country. This is the land of the Choctaw people. And mm-hmm. so I just like to honor that. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about where you are, Kristen. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, on Lakota land um, in Minnesota. And, uh, I've also, I've also thought a lot this year, I was just back home in Oklahoma. Um, and, you know, pondering how I grew up in a town called Shawnee in a County called Potawatomi next door was Tecumseh. And I, you know, had so that the names of the places remained, which is kind of interesting to me that all the names yeah. were kept, but the stories, all the Lost. all the significance, who those people were, who those peoples were, yeah. um, was not transmitted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and I bet now, going back, like you said, just recently to Oklahoma, with mm-hmm. this consciousness that you have now, it's, yeah. it's in your face. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of shocking, actually. Well, I want to um, say that I know that you, I love the way you start your podcast with the, the same question that you ask people about their faith. And I have a question that I also start my podcast with. And, um, you know, this is called the Brown Rice Hour. Yeah. And it's the brown rice hour because uh, for it's a it's a it's it's a play on a lot of reasons why I call it the brown rice hour. As you know, I'm also working with rice these days. But brown rice also changed my life. It was when I became a um, micro microbiotic and all of that back in the day. And and it's um it's just a grain that has a lot of significance to me. So I'm a foodie as well. I love food, and I always I find it interesting to ask people this question because it it shows all kinds of ways that you get into their personal lives and that is I asked the question what as a child was your comfort food and who prepared that comfort food for you mm. you know I wish I had I I, I don't have a uh, a, an answer to that question that is as meaningful as I wish it were, but it actually, the answer I have also tells a story of our country, right? I grew up in the 1960s with a mother who'd studied home economics. And, you know, it was this moment, I feel like we're just part of what we're unraveling now is what we did to food in the late 20th century. And it was this discovery that you could get foods out. Of, I mean, I thought of Honestly, food came out of boxes and cans and, you know, those containers that um, biscuits, right? Biscuits and cinnamon rolls and cookies were in those cardboard containers. 
So, but so, so that's actually most of my food life was what was considered to be progress. And Mm -hmm. it's the best example I know of, you know, that innovation is not always progress, right? And the past, Mm -hmm. and, and, and so, um, because it was high innovation. uh, At the same time, my grandfather, who was a Southern Baptist preacher, always had this plot of land outside my hometown. And also we'd really, uh, this is kind of what you're getting into now, Kondo, like farming was looked down on, you know, in this tiny little town I came from where, I mean, Uh I don't know what was better, but somehow it had been diminished. But my grandfather always kept this plot of land. And when he retired, he moved there and he had a few cattle and he had pecan trees and he had a garden and we would go over to his house and I can still taste to my, to my grandparents' house. And they always cooked the exact same thing. My grandmother always cooked the exact same thing. And my parents made fun of it, but I love that meal so much. I never wanted anything else. It was fried chicken and cream gravy and biscuits and um, vegetables from the garden, um, uh-huh. tomatoes and onions I and okra. I loved okra. You know, it's so hard to get and you can't get it in Minnesota. And um, my grandfather made these sweet, he made, he grew these onions that were so sweet. And so that's, that's my favorite food memory, but it's like kind of off to the side of my, my primary food life. Yeah. Yeah. That is so interesting that, um, that those two juxtaposing very different right at home was the was the the can and then there was the the real yeah, farm she's with so as a child yeah but here's the good thing is that as a child you got to know that food actually grows out of the ground it doesn't I come out in a can yeah you got to know that because of your grandparents yeah 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 it's a important I, a lot of kids these days they really don't know so mm-hmm. i'm i i love that you're talking about your 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 grand parents and your grandfather. So he was a Baptist minister. I know that you grew up in an evangelical culture in Oklahoma. Is that correct? Well, I did, but um, we would never have called it evangelical, uh, right? I mean, it's kind of the way we define these things now. It was probably kind of part Pentecostal, part evangelical, but um, yeah, it was kind of middle of America, Southern Baptist, but not and not at all. And you know, when we say evangelical now, you also have it also has political connotations, and none of that was there. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. It was just the it was the way of worship. Yeah, and it was and, really the center of life, center of life. Mm-hmm. And then, did you not leave for about a decade and oh yeah moved away from religion? Yeah, and for about a whole decade, and then you came back. I guess a decade later. Yeah. Can, what, who were you? Who who was the Krista that emerged coming back? Because I mean, yeah. afterwards, I mean, you went to, you went to Yale Divinity School, so you went. Yeah. You know, what was that process in in the middle? Yeah. There? And I, you know, I got I I got headed in that back in that direction of just getting curious about religion. And also about my own spirituality, my own inner life. Mm-hmm. Um, not because I got, not because I was kind of positively introduced to that, but because I, I spent 10 years pretty much being immersed in politics and really high policy, geopolitics of divided Berlin at that time. And it was so exciting. And I was working for an ambassador who was a nuclear arms expert in the end. And I was living in Divided Berlin, which was this incredible social laboratory. I started there to see the limits of what politics and even high policy not only could address, but was interested in. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in that human level of how people mm-hmm. create lives of meaning and dignity or fail to do so. And I saw in Berlin that it it that people did that. And it wasn't dependent on the circumstances you were handed. You could be handed the worst of circumstances and create a beautiful mm-hmm. life. You could be handed the best of circumstances and have an empty life. And I just, to me, that was that was as fascinating as nuclear arms. And it was a little hard for me to justify 
the importance I attach to that, but what I started to realize it's our spiritual traditions that have have honored the importance of that. And so very gradually then that led me to say, okay, if I'm going to take this seriously, then I want to study this and I want to see what's there. Wow. So it actually, so I didn't realize so that the Berlin experience in your life actually brought you to back to this spiritual inner, inner life, looking at this outer life as yeah. you are in Berlin. Yeah. Interesting. And so, you know, you have a way, Krista, of talking about faith that it, it, it doesn't seem to alienate people. I mean, sure, mm-hmm. there must be people that it alienates, but by and large, you have this way of talking about faith that I love that is so inclusive. And I, I come to think that it has to do with so many sources of input. When I think about your life, like some of the things that you just described, I think about um, all the many people that you have set your life up to talk to. You've set your life up so that you have these conversations. You're constantly getting this input from so many people, you know, all over the world, all over the globe, right? Theologians and scientists and activists and poets. I love that. All the many different types of people that you bring together, that you speak to. And if I, wonder if I, I, I thought about this last night. I'm wondering if it's almost like you have the ability right now, or I don't know if you're consciously or unconsciously doing something, but it feels like you have all the ingredients to put together almost a new kind of spirituality, mm. almost a new kind of spirituality that I decided last night is called tippetism. <laughs> Don't tell anybody in public radio, okay? <laughs> I won't. But I'm thinking that there's this new thing called tippetism. And if there was this new spirituality called tippetism, that is this amalgamation of all the input, what would you say would be its foundation or its what would be at the core of it? What does it incorporate? <laughs> I have never thought about this question. Um, <laughs> But I think so. You know, um, it's, it's great. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel um, talked about something he called depth theology, and, mm-hmm. um, and 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 he's a good figure to illustrate this because I mean he was from I don't know how many generations of East European rabbis. I mean he was just he, his lineage was so deep and so particular. Um, and yet what he learned in his life was that when he, you know, he was, he, he, he was in that front line of people marching to sell with, you know, into, into Montgomery with, um, with Martin Luther King Jr. And, um, and he had all these, he, he, he had, he ended up having all these friendships and these dialogues with with people who were as deeply rooted in their tradition as he was deeply planted in his and spoke a language, right? A vocabulary and had um, this world of ritual and ways to analyze uh, the human condition as well as who God might be or what faith might mean. And he, he talked about how when, um, when, you know, for him and also for me, it's it's not about, it's never been about figuring out what we all have in common, right? So I think that's the question. Sometimes people have asked me across the years. Um, so all these people you've interviewed from all these traditions, what is the thing they have in common? And that's just, I mean, I could probably come up with an answer, but it's not the interesting question to me. What's interesting to me is how when we speak from the depths of, and I don't just mean belief, but practice, I'm also not that interested in belief. I'm interested in what's lived. And and you get, you hear these echoes and yet so many different words and ways of enacting and understanding and living these things. And I think we need all of that particularity to point at whatever we're pointing at and also to honor the particularity of, of our experiences. So 
I don't think I gave you an answer, but somehow it would have to do with the kind of the paradox and the beautiful paradox that we don't have to sacrifice depth to come together. We don't have to sacrifice depths to profoundly know our kinship. And, and when we bring those two things together, our depths and particularities and our kinship, we teach each other. And, and we're all rooted and we're all growing. <laughs> Agriculture <laughs> metaphors, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I, um, yeah, the answer, what I'm feeling, what I'm hearing too, is that tippetism is still, it's almost the answer you gave about your book, mm. that it, there's no book yet, that mm. there's this emergent soup that's happening. And, and it's something like there's, it feels like that there's this, this this um, this necessity, almost not to put it into some kind of container, yeah. but to allow, but to allow. You know, I don't think I'm a leader of this. I don't think I create it. I think I have, I think I have opened a space mm-hmm. for people to recognize something that they're mm-hmm. that they're something larger that they're part of, and to recognize mm-hmm. kinship across boundaries that they would never have imagined there was kinship and just for people to feel less alone in being really, really, uh, you know, enjoying and exploring this interplay between being grounded and being open, this creative interplay. Yeah. But I think that that's what 21st century leadership is. Mm. It's, it's really, it's not, kind of leading that we think about is the kind yeah. of opening of space. Yeah. It's right? not handing something down. No, it's not. Right. It's not handing something down. It's allowing, opening, creating the conditions for yeah. folks to be able yeah. to, I to explore yeah. within them. And that's what you do. You create those conditions. Mm. And so I still think tippetism is a is a <laughs> <laughs> is a thing. I think it's a thing, Krista. Mm-hmm. I do. I think about all the people. I, I, you have this unique space, honestly, mm-hmm. where because of the breadth of people that you speak to, I don't I don't know anyone who's touching all those spaces, and mm-hmm. and they have to touch you. You know, you're touching them and they're touching you. Mm -hmm. And as they touch you, you get nuggets everywhere Mm -hmm. and they start to develop and continue to, to merge into your thinking. Your thinking must change all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I feel is um, all these conversations come into conversation with each other inside me. Inside you. Right. Yeah. And that is, (laughs) that's really that that's that's fascinating i mean it it and, and i yeah i think about when you the people that you choose i mean there are so many people that want to knock on your door and say hey talk to me but i think that if i were in your shoes i would be choosing what is the next thing that i want to know mm. who has that voice of the next thing that i was missing inside of me that i want to hear from versus i mean I, you know it sounds very personal and and but I think that that's how I would look at it. And I don't know if you do or not, if you think about what is this piece of nugget of, of interesting knowledge that I want to engage in. How do you choose your people? I think, you know, it's, I, I don't think of it that way. I think of it as um, I, I, I'm always, I feel like I, I'm, Oh, I'm a I'm a listener, right? And 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 I and I think our organization is a listening organization. And so um I'm listening to my guests, but I'm all also listening to the world and to the culture and to my listeners. And so mm-hmm. I think also there's some beautiful thing. There's so many beautiful things about getting older. You know, I, I feel like at 60, I turned 60 in 2020, and as you know, and um I trust my gut so much these days. And you yeah. know, it's so wonderful to yeah. live into your gut. And so especially in this last year, it's, it's a combination of, I mean, so especially in this last year, I was so attentive to what I was feeling and how I was reacting and responding and what's happening in the world. But then I'm always also kind of testing that against, is this what other people are saying too? And sometimes 
I, you know, I think my gut is good. So, so I feel like I, I, I do, I, I felt, especially in last year, I was, I was in tune with something, but not always. I mean, I, I have to, so, so it's this combination of what I want and then feeling around for, am mm-hmm. I, is that longing part of a larger mm-hmm. longing? Yeah. Is that what the world is asking for? Mm-hmm. And the people, people are asking yeah. for so much right now. Yeah. You know, I, I decided in this interview that I wanted to talk to you about um, the lens that three people that you have interviewed um, mm-hmm. that um, speak deeply to me as well. And I, I'm looking at them as the three black men in your life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because the black voice is so important to me and yeah. obviously and 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 how you um how you access that the the black voice and what you do and bring it in and how you integrate it and um and so I just wanted to um highlight and talk to you through this lens of three right. black men in your life okay. and uh I wonder if you can guess who they are but I'll, I'll I'll just tell you in case you yeah. just <laughs> one is the first one is Dr. Vincent Hardy. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one is Resma. Yeah. And then the third is Brian Stevenson. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, so, you know, do you know, Jason Reynolds? I just, we're just, that's all. Yeah. He's also an amazing younger, younger man. Yeah, old, younger. Yeah. So there are, there are yeah. many black men in my life these days. And of course there's <laughs> Johnson, my, my head of my social healing, but yes. Vincent introduced me to Lucas, right? Right. Um, right. Vincent. You want to tell people who Vincent is? Yeah. Vincent bit. Harding was when I met him, a civil rights elder. Um, he you know, in the Southern Freedom Movement, he, he he was in Chicago and he was in the Mennonite tradition, which is a beautiful peace, peace building, peacemaking tradition, deep, deep yeah. lineage. Um, and he he was a young man in his 20s and he met this young man in his 20s named Martin Luther King Jr. and ended up in Atlanta. And um, uh he, so he, he, not Atlanta, <laughs> Atlanta, no, where were they? Yes, Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah. But anyway, he ended up being really at the heart. There's so many, so many incredible people, leaders, change makers, social creatives from that movement that whose names we don't know. So I, you know, I think Vincent is known by some, but not He's not known by all, but he helped write. He he wrote. He helped write King's Vietnam speech. He Vietnam ran. Speech. He ran the Mennonite Center. He was absolutely right in there in the formulation of the uh, philosophy and practice of non-vi- nonviolence. And um, and he was just an extraordinary person. You know, after kind of the height of the movement, he dedicated himself to young people, and also to bringing. He created this project called Veterans of Hope. And that's how he described the people who had been involved in that movement of the 60s and 50s and 60s. And he brought young people um, into contact with these veterans of hope. And Mm -hmm. he was just one of these people when I met him. And I, I suspect he was always like this, but certainly when I met him as an elder, he was just you just sat at his feet. He, you know, every yeah. word and he's influenced so many people, you know, Isabel Wilkerson comes to mind. I mean, I'm always meeting people of a new generation who are, who are being formative and who are formed by Vincent. And yeah, he introduced me. I, so, so I interviewed him and it was amazing. And it was a such a gift to introduce Vincent Harding to a lot of people who, who didn't, yes. didn't you know, hadn't known about yeah. him. And, um, and then I remember I invited him. So we stayed in touch and we kept somehow intersecting. And then um, I invited him to come to something I was doing. And he at first he said, yes. And then he called me and he said, um, Krista, I've been thinking about that invitation. And I want you to invite this young man named Lucas Johnson. And he said, <laughs> he said this young man embodies for the 21st century what we were, what we, what we started in the 20th. 
And, Ooh. and as you know, now Lucas, you know, I got, so I got to know Lucas and he now is one is a co-leader with me of the project. And so oh. I, I feel this connection to, and Vincent was, was like a father to Lucas. Lucas, uh, Lucas refers to Vincent as uncle Vincent. And so I feel this very direct connection to him in everything I do now. Yeah. I, I think he, um, you know, you're, I, I was listening, I've listened to it a couple of times. Your interview is 2011, I think with, 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 uh, Dr. Harney. Yeah, that's and, um, I, I love, so there's this overall, we were talking about faith, right? There's this overall who and the, the kinds of conversations that you're having. Inter, intersecting that is the conversation of democracy. Yeah. Particularly when we talk yeah. with Black folks, democracy and faith and spirituality, that yeah. intersection come together. And, and, yeah. and Vincent Harding really, um, that conversation went into that democracy and faith and that intersection yeah. there. And he says also, he talks about, what does it mean to be truly human? He asked that question. Yeah. I'm wondering, did you get that from him or did he get that from, was he playing off of what you had said or no, how did that work? That no, that was just, that just emerged. I mean, I don't know how much I was, I was probably, you know, but he said it in his own way. He said the question of what it truly means yeah. to be human is, is the question at the heart of religion. And it's also the question at the heart of democracy, which is obvious right. to him, but it's not obvious in the way we've constructed our democracy. And he also said, right. and I always quote him on this, you know, when it comes to being a multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious um, yep. democracy, we are a developing nation. Developing nation. We've only been we at this, he says, for 50 years. And it's yep. it's important to remember that. I mean, we're just, but when he said that to me a few years ago, I think right now that feels very present in a way that it didn't feel as obvious 10 years ago. Mm. Yeah. With all the developments that's happened, particularly in yeah. 2020. Yeah. I, I love, I love, I, I quoted those, those are my passages in that interview as well that I wrote down yeah. that I love. Yeah. And I, I, you say that it's, it, it's obvious democracy. He says democracy is simply another way of speaking yeah. a question. Yeah. And that religion is another way of speaking about that question. What is our purpose in this world? And is that purpose related to our responsibilities to each other and to the world itself? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Can you, can you just kind of tease that out for people, democracy, religion, and, and, um, and yeah. And spirituality. Well, can you tease that? Yeah. You know, he, he also says the, the question we need to be asking is, how do we bring our best capacity and gifts to these endeavors mm -hmm. and to each other? And I think that, um, you know, I, something that I've started saying in very recent years that to me is, is another way of saying what Vince is just saying there is that this question of what it means to be human for us in this century, um, it, that's an ancient question, right? That's the oldest question. Um, and all of our religious traditions are, are, special places where that question has been picked up and carried forward and addressed. Um, mm -hmm. In our century, the question of what it means to be human is inextricable from the question of who we will be to each other. Right. And, and right. And that is what our, what, what our spiritual traditions point us to take seriously and honor. And it's, it's not the question around which we've organized our political system, but if we don't live into who we are to each other, we we don't, I think we don't have any chance of flourishing. I think we, you know, perhaps survive. I think that question yeah. in our bones, in our hearts, in our brains, in our labor is the only way we walk generatively into our ecological crisis, right? Into our, our racial, um, I don't want to call it a reckoning, right? Like just if, let me say it this way, it is that we walk towards human wholeness. Um, we have divided ourselves up in so many ways in so many artificial ways that are really at the root of all of our great crises. And I don't want 
diversity. I want a whole society in which everyone is their whole self and we have whole institutions. That is about understanding our belonging to each other. I mean, and and science is in that picture too, right? I mean, we are all made of stardust, right? I mean, we have so many ways to understand this now. That's now a scientific fact. It's not a line of poetry. It's a fact. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, he ends by asking, is America even possible? Is America possible? Yeah. But he said, Vincent Harding said, yes, if we Mm -hmm. make it so, yes. And I feel like if if Vincent Harding could could state that, yes, then I am called to state that, yes, and figure out what it takes to live that. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of when I think about democracy and... um, Nicole Hannah-Jones is the 1619 Project, right? Yeah. And um, she states that that our democracy, that actually it's Black folks have had the faith in democracy more yeah. than anyone. Yeah. And that we have brought it. If it's going to happen, it's because of the work that Black folks have done, because we believe in it. We have more faith in it than, than the white forefathers who created it. Yeah because we are working towards it. It was like, you said there's democracy. You said there's democracy. Let's make it happen. Right. And so that is really um, one of the things that I, I look at and I think about and what is it? And I think because when I think about, because um, democracy is leading towards that liberation that we've been looking for, that we've been needing and wanting, right? That we have mm-hmm. walked towards as a liberation. When you feel like you have already have that liberation, for example, as white body people, and I'm, we're going to get into resume now, yeah. the white body people. And yeah. when you feel like you already have that liberation, you're not mm-hmm. looking for it. I think that that is why it's okay that it's not okay, but they're uh, talking about cognitive dissonance. There's like, as a white body person, you want there to be democracy. And when you see that unevenness actually gives you a head start somewhere, it's yeah. like, well, that's okay. You yeah. know, and that's a cognitive dissonance that I know white body people are living with. Yeah. Um, because as opposed to when you look at, at, at bodies of culture who are working towards that. And that is why I think democracy sits so squarely as yeah. a part of what's important and what we work towards. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I, you know, I interviewed Resma Menicum before, before the pandemic hit and it was so powerful. And, and actually that was our show that was scheduled for the week that the lockdown occurred. Right. So it, it went up on Thursday, it goes up on Thursday to the satellite. Mm -hmm. And that was the week that, that Broadway closed and, you know, states of emergency and work. We sent our, everybody sent their employees home and um, we, we, you know, and even resume agreed. We said, we can't, this show is so powerful and we can't put it on the air right now because people are right. We're in a, we're in a crisis in fear mode. And this is a show that needs people to sink into their bodies and think hard thoughts and feel hard things. And um, I remember one of my producers said, oh, it's so it's so tragic that we can't put this on the air. And <laughs> I said, we can't put it on the air because people won't be able to hear it. And it's really important that they hear it. And I also remember saying, sadly, I promise you, we will have a moment before too long when we when 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 we have to talk about race and we put resma on the air and right and and, and, you and know then what george happened. floyd is murdered in our city where in i live where, where resma lives right where the three of you where the two of you where live. we all live so um yeah and you know just there's so much we could talk about there but i just to what you just said part of my reaction i mean part of what's on my heart well first of all i yes i you're right i have bringing a person, a voice like Resma or Vincent or Brian or, um, or Jason Reynolds or Isabel Wilkerson or, you know, on and on and people who are less well-known. That is such an honor. And also one thing Resma made me 
so aware of is how important it is that I, that white people talk to white people, right. And that, and that we not all, all right. And that black people talk to black, that we don't all have to be in the same room, partly because our, in some way, you know, he, he talks about trauma that's there in all kinds of bodies. And in some cases, in, in the, in the case of white people, there was trauma and that were, you know, we did this terrible thing human beings did, which is project, just pass it on, pass on the trauma to others. Um, Yeah. And so, but it's not actually always healthy or helpful uh, for us to do our work together. And um, so when you talk about, you know, I was just last night with a group of white friends and, um, the conversation that is on my mind is um, I'm a white person. I have a lot of stability and, and power of, in a, you know, in, in my way. And it doesn't cost me anything to be anti-racist, right. To, to make that move, to declare that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet people like me, what we have to do is talk about where we where we send our like our commitment to local schools, right? Like it's where the rubber meets the road. It's not about making statements. It's about how we live, and there are structural impulses, especially when it comes to you know how you just you want the best for your children, and that has created you know what that has meant and what it has spun out into in terms of the structures of our life and the effect on other children. And so what I'm like aware of is there's this thing that happens in progressive comfortable circles of, oh, we're the ones who have Black Lives Matter signs in our yards. We're the ones who say we're anti-racist. We're the ones who are checking our language. And those people are, those white people are, you know, waving Confederate flags or telling pollsters that they don't agree with Black Lives Matter. But I think we're all on a pretty level playing field in terms of, so so I think it's for white people, people in white bodies to open that hospitable space for other people in white bodies, for us to work this out together. Because it's not good enough for people in black and brown bodies for white people to create these artificial, you know, this, we, we got to get our act together. I agree. I agree. And I'm happy to hear you say that. And I think that that's what I, it was interesting to watch that interview with you and Resma. I watched it. I don't know how many times I've watched that interview. And I think it's the first time that I saw your being like, I guess I would say you were challenged not to be challenged in a way, there was like this challenging, <laughs> and I wish I could see you because he he mentioned at one point the red face that you had, and yeah, yeah, you know, and you're you're animated, your voice, I could tell yeah. it was like he was pushing, he was yeah. pushing, and yeah. it was so it was the first time that I ever heard. That's why mm-hmm. I listened to it over and mm-hmm. over, and mm-hmm. it's like that is what it is. There's like I know that we want, and you as someone who is. Um, who sees humanity the way that you do mm-hmm. and knowing that we doing this together, how do we be together mm-hmm. and understanding what Resma was saying, in which I a hundred percent agree. And a lot of black people do. We have to do this in separate spaces. Yeah. We yeah. have to do this because there's too much trauma and too much triggering yeah. trauma. And there's too much unsafety. It's just unsafe. Yeah. And like he said, you know, when you look behind you and you look up and you're thinking, you know, I'm in a room with these people who I love or, or I don't know whether whatever my relationship is, there's still always this suspect of what's the next thing, that's, what's the shoe that's going to drop? Who's going to say something that's actually, actually uh, ignorant or yeah. comes out of a space that they don't, you know, completely unconscious. Yeah. But and, and there's this, there's this unspoken need for you to offer forgiveness and for you to help in the healing. And that's not your job. Right. Right. And it's bad for you, right. To be put in that. That's exactly right. And those are the things that it takes a lot of uh, doing the deep work 
to understand. And so mm-hmm. I agree. I think that, again, I go back to Black folks and democracy pushing democracy because it is a liberation theology, really. That is what democracy yeah. is. And when you need, when you are heading in that direction because you don't have those basic needs met um, based on a structural system, right? So it's not, it's not just interpersonal, but the structural system of it. Yeah. But, or when you do, when you're on the other side as a white body person, you have that, you can look beyond. And so then that's why it's so easy to just not see the truth yeah. of what is happening here. And so you're saying, and white people talking to white body people, talking to white body people, it's exactly what has to happen. Yeah, It has to happen in the interpersonal level. It has to happen yeah. on, on the collective level. And I, I think about um, some of the, um, the work that you're doing and you have such a broad audience, you have such a platform mm-hmm. and you impact so many people. And to see your vulnerability with Resmo was really wonderful. Mm. And to see and to hear your growth from that conversation, it's like, what is, and then Reverend Angel as well, yeah. you know, yeah. that conversation, yeah, she's another, yeah. right? Yeah. Another one. I'd love to get on the black women's tip too. This is the black <laughs> know, <women> yeah. Tip. <laughs> yeah. But the black women's tip is another one, right? And yeah. I'm just wondering um, how, like you said, you have a position, you have a platform, mm-hmm. you have a position of power. Mm-hmm. How do you intentionally use it to do this inter-white healing? How do I use it? Well, first of all, we're we're modeling something. Now I'm so I want to be clear that when that moment happened with Reza, um, where I think what I was saying to him is he he's he he started talking about white supremacy. And I was going to instruct him on the fact that if you if you <laughs> if you use that, we can't language, hear that. Right, well, right. I, well, what I was what I was trying to talk to him about is is how I've been so attentive over the years. I mean, I've this has just been a fact that if mm-hmm. you start using language like that, like right, it's at the headline. You're going to lose right. people before the conversation starts. So it's a strategic way of not not saying it, but getting people to a place where they can hear it. But he kind of basically said to me, no, make people uncomfortable. And and what's interesting, what I want to, you know, what feels important to me is to hold up that um, one of the great things that happened, I mean, great, terrible, that it had to be a great thing that this happened, but there, there was a breakthrough, and I think because people were so softened and grounded by the <laughs> pandemic, that yeah. white a lot more white people got comfortable with being uncomfortable, got familiar with oh this is this is a move I have to make, and yeah, so so that was kind of amazing. So, but I do think that I have experienced what people say to me is that having me be willing to to you know we could have cut that out right <laughs> that part right. <laughs> but like leave that in um is is modeling something i also i really do believe i'm i'm absolutely convinced that this softening this awakening was not just among progressive democrats and there's this fiction now that gets reinforced by the way opinion poll questions get asked among other things that says that there's the enlightened left the enlightened white left and then there's the primitive racist white right and it's just i am so committed i don't believe that and i'm so committed to figuring out what does it mean to to, to keep that space so that everybody feels welcome. And I know that I, I don't, I don't judge you. I don't assume things about you. I just want to tell you a story. Like this is the kind of story that's not out there. I was speaking with a, an evangelical elder um, about this question of how do we, how do we make this conversation that's big and spacious and everybody is honored and welcomed and we grow together and he told me a story about um, 
a group he's in, uh, a, a couple's group that they've been in forever, and everybody in there is a conservative evangelical. He's a conservative evangelical, but he was involved in the civil rights movement in the 60s. And so he he's like always had that in him, and it's very much integrated into his Christianity. He didn't vote for Donald Trump, but everybody else in the group did, although they don't talk, they didn't talk about politics. But anyway, he told me a story about a, a, a man in that group. Uh, you know, these are people probably in their 70s. And there's there's also an African-American man in the group. And so when all the protests started, this this white gentleman uh, had a conversation with his black friend, his same age, who's also conservative and was complaining about the protests and about Black Lives Matter and isn't this overblown. And this man who he'd known forever, who is, you know, in his camp politically and 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 theologically, shared with him what it has been to be in his Black body for 70 years in this country. And it was a revelation to this, to his white friend. And this man, this evangelical Republican, wrote a letter to his children and grandchildren confessing <laughs> his sin and what he had not known and his shame <laughs> at that <laughs> and repenting in the best in the best tradition of of that of that faith and so like part of what i'm also committed to is being present to that kind of conversion mm-hmm. that's happening quietly yeah mm-hmm. yeah it, when you have a real face to it too, right? Um, yeah. That's really a great story. It's and a wonderful I agree. story. I, yeah, I think that I, 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 I have faith that that is true, that, that no, it's not just, and, and I, it's not just the progressive whites who have, you know, this aha moment in our, yeah. and it's really important that, you know, the, you know, the nice, I'm a nice white person over here yeah. and you're the bad uncle over there, racist uncle yeah. over there. But that split is not going to work. It doesn't work. It's not helping. And yeah. it has to be, that's the divide that has to, of yeah. more so right now, I think. Yes, the, the, the white bodies and the bodies of culture divide definitely has, but it begins by mending within our own. Yeah how we mend and come together and stop the divisiveness around, you know, I'm the good people, you're the bad people. Yeah. Um, and because and, and everyone is also complicit to the system. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that's, so I, uh, that brings me actually now to um, Brian Stevenson, who yeah. um, is just, who such a joy. I, um, I've been three times now to um, the memorial and and um, the museum in Montgomery, Alabama, and his work is just so incredible. And I love. I want to a little bit also talk about the app. That yeah, well, is that's connected. Out, yeah, app. it's connected. That's why I yeah. wanted to save it for last. Yeah. I wanted to save yeah. it for last. Yeah, you chose your first course yeah. on the app to be Brian Stevenson, and yeah. I love that you do that, Krista. Yeah, I love it, and this whole conversation about the muscle of hope yeah. and getting proximate. Yeah, all of that is so juicy, and I'm really interested in mm-hmm. you talking more about that because I first I have to tell you. I have not really used the word hope much. Hope felt like something distant and I, I, I've never I've never resonated with it. And it uh-huh. wasn't until the lesson, because I took the lesson. Oh right? you did. Oh, oh, so I you did. listened to it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna be your first yeah. collaborator. I'm gonna be the first, yeah. I'm gonna be the first <laughs> okay. to give you feedback. I forgot okay. that, that yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. yes. And listening to it actually and listening to the two of you change my mind about the word. Oh. Yeah. It's never resonated with me as something hope felt too puffy. Mm-hmm. It felt like marshmallow. Yeah. You know, I think of yeah. I think of like when yeah. So anyway. Yeah. And the course is hope it's a muscle. Right. So the words I don't use I don't use the word optimism because it because yeah I think yeah. it's yeah. wishful thinking. No, yeah. So Brian Stevenson, what is so amazing about him, you know, in you know in a like everything he's created but when I interviewed yeah. him because I said so okay so I I get 
you know, that you became a lawyer and you met somebody on death row and you ended up, you know, defending people and that expanded to, you know, children who are tried as adults and mentally incapacitated, the, the, the cruelty and the dehumanization of our criminal justice system. And how does that turn into a memorial and a museum and, you know, <laughs> and I, right. I mean, and, and what I understood about him and the, and the equal justice initiative is that they're, they're, they're all, they're a learning organization, right? So the more he got into what is so broken Mm-hmm. Uh, about our our criminal justice system reflects the brokenness in our society and goes back to a root dehumanization that was the root dehumanization of slavery. And so what he started to realize is he could win, he could win court cases in the Supreme Court. But if right. they didn't start addressing the root causes, um, so that's what they've been doing and kind of educating people. Yeah. Educating people. And yeah, for him, you know, hope is the insistence that it doesn't have to be this way. And it, but it's not a, it's not an argument. It's not a cerebral insistence. It's a, I'm going to throw my life behind this insistence. And, you know, his yeah. point is that when that goes away, when people accept that something that this can't be changed. This is the way it is. When you get hopeless, that's when you get powerless. Um, yeah. So to put him as the first session of the course, <laughs> it was just so obvious. I mean, it was, was it? so obvious. So many people. Wow. It was so, so obvious because he, you know, what does he say? He says, hope is that thing that gets you up in the morning that, you know, that makes you stand up when people say sit down, that makes you speak when other people say be silent. It's yeah. So that I've always yeah. said this hope is a muscle. This is something I started saying years ago, but he yeah. actually explained it to me. <laughs> yeah. well, and he says it's a superpower, right? It's a superpower. It's I, I, yeah. I, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. And I'm it's just a great place to begin with the app. A little small commercial moment about the app. If, if you don't mind, I really, can you talk a little bit about what's, well, in, what's coming up? Yeah. Well, we're hoping it'll launch in July sometime. It's in the apps. It's not out yet, but uh, I don't know when you're, when this is going to air. Um, yeah, it's, uh, soon. it's a way to, yeah, soon. It, okay. And it's a way to, um, you know, well, okay. So, so we started with the book I didn't write because it felt like I was right. speaking to a far future. And right. I realized that the app was a way to speak to the present. And and not just uh, speak to the present, to accompany the present, and to pull, to 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 bring forward these people who have taught me, and you know, taught by way of this weekly thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to really bring them forward as the teachers they are, mm-hmm. and also to this conversation that they're in in my head to make that to bring that yeah, out. So, yeah. Um, and it just became, it's just been such an incredible creative project to, wow. to envision that and to get, for me to get into a new kind of conversation, you know, with, with the Brian Stevens, for example, like, as you heard, kind of with that interview, um, dig into what is this, what is this teaching that's there? And what is the invitation that's there for anybody listening to begin living this way, practicing qualities of character that may be unfamiliar, but can be practiced. Like it's a muscle that can be flexed. I'm thinking about it as I've used this language of spiritual and moral calisthenics, that that's what this course is about. (laughs) But with the Brian Stevenson interview, the headline is hope is our superpower. Um, And actually evolutionary biologists are saying the same thing, which is fascinating, but his counsel that, you know, a superpower is a little bit intimidating, but how do you start? How do you start? You get proximate, right? So his whole thing started with one conversation with one man on death row. And he was a law student and had no idea what he was getting into. And he started learning from there. And the question that everybody's asking, not everybody, but enough of us are asking is how do, how do I begin to walk into what 2020 gave us to do? And, and 
we have to not do this American thing of rushing to, we need to do some discernment and some getting proximate and some, and listening and figuring out what we don't know enough about to formulate our action step. So we, we need to be in discernment and walking at the same time. And he's also just so amazing about that. I really love the intimacy of mm-hmm. what I've experienced so far with the app, the small nuggets. And then that second section where you, yeah. it's practice, yeah. where you actually are with us, the audience and doing practice. And I just thought this is going to be so rich. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really excited about this, this. And it's interesting for you to say to full circle how the book didn't happen yeah. yet and that this is the, the accompanying people now yeah. app. It's like the, the, the accompaniment app. It's also me getting accompanied. Right? Yeah. It's okay. also me okay. saying, I'm, I'm here too. Let's walk together. Let's do it together. Yeah. It is really, um, and I, I just loved the con- the whole conversation with Brian mm-hmm. that you had and getting proximate. If you can just a little bit talk about when you say getting proximate, yeah. there's this physical proximity that he did with the person that yeah. he met. Yeah. But then there's a spiritual proximity you talk yeah. about. Yeah. Can yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. And, a little I, bit? and again, I think that we're so trained to do to do something. And we do need to do, but the quality of our presence, the quality of how we're going to do that thing or be in that place really matters. And, you know, Mm -hmm. the the spiritual proximity is kind of getting, getting grounded and inside yourself as you step into curiosity. I mean, curiosity is, it is, is actually, in internal work as much as it's external work. And mm-hmm. so it's, so I think there are these ways that are, that are simple, but actually muscles that can be withered. Um, yeah. So yeah, getting proximate is also orienting yourself. It's where am I going to look? Where am I going to listen? There's some, there's some self-examination about what, what have I not been hearing? Where have I not been looking? And how do I kind of turn myself inwardly in a spirit of genuine curiosity towards that? So it's more than just a physical move. Yeah. I love that. I have one last question for you. The pandemic. I'm curious, what was its biggest gift to you? Mm. Oh, Discomfort, I'd say. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are other gifts and, and there have been, you know, trials, but it did absolutely reorient me. So getting oriented to reality uh, in my body, in my circumstances, meant that I needed to get really uncomfortable and understand that that is an invitation. It's not going to kill me, right? It's going to grow. Still alive. Still alive. And it's for the rest of my life. And it's the way of things. And I'm not alone. And I, and I also want to help other people, you know, let other people know they're not alone in this. Thank you, Krista. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for being my friend as well. So wonderful to have you on the show. Yeah. Yeah. I love you so much. You are such a treasure, such a treasure. And um, maybe we'll do a part two with Krista Tippett and Black Women. How's that? Yeah. I love that. Okay. We'll do that one. Okay. Part two. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, Krista. And I want to say that Krista Tippett um, resources um, that I want to share with you is on being, onbeing.org, onbeing.org is the website. 
Uh, she has an incredible podcast. I recommend it very highly. Um, Becoming Wise and Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living is the book and the Wisdom app that we just talked about that is launching July 2021. Thank you for joining me. See you next time. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.